Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining me this evening. Tonight, we'll be continuing with The Enchanted April. But first, take a moment to prepare for sleep. Focus on allowing every muscle in your face to relax. Start by releasing tension in your forehead. Let your eyebrows feel like they're sliding down the sides of your face. Let your lips relax and part naturally. Let your tongue fall from the roof of your mouth. And finally, release any tension in your jaw. Drop your shoulders, releasing any tension in your neck and let your arms rest beside you. Breathe in through your nose and exhale completely, relaxing your chest. Think about letting your legs, your thighs and your calves sink downward. Now, stay calm and still while I recap our last episode. Last time, Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins decided it would do no harm to send an inquiry about the castle. Mrs. Arbuthnot found herself preoccupied with the prospect of Italy all day. Her main concern was spending all her savings on herself instead of the poor. She always gave them a considerable donation in order to attempt to cleanse the money of its origin. Mrs. Arbuthnot hated that her husband's income came from writing sordid biographies about famous royal mistresses, and they had grown apart because of it. Mr. Briggs was the owner of the castle, and he replied to their letter confirming the rent would be £60 for the month and that he would like references. While this was much more than they expected, Mrs. Wilkins decided they could advertise in the paper for two companions to split the rent in half. Meanwhile, so as not to have to tell more people about their plan, Mrs. Arbuthnot took the full £60 up front to the address on the letter directly. 
Mr. Briggs was so taken with her that he waived the need for references on the spot. Only two women responded to their ad. One was a young aristocrat named Lady Caroline Dester, eager to get away from all her family and friends for a while. The other was an elderly widow, Mrs. Fisher, who had amazing tales of all the famous Victorian writers, her father having been a well-known critic. And that is where we pick up tonight. The plan to go to Italy set in motion. So just lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Enchanted April. Chapter 4 It had been arranged that Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins, travelling together, should arrive at San Salvatore on the evening of March 31st. The owner, who told them how to get there, appreciated their disinclination to begin their time in it on April 1st, and Lady Caroline and Mrs. Fisher, as yet, unacquainted and therefore under no obligations to bore each other on the journey, for only towards the end would they find out by a process of sifting who they were, were to arrive on the morning of April 2nd. In this way, everything would be got nicely ready for the two who seemed, in spite of the equality of the sharing, yet to have something about them of guests. There were disagreeable incidents towards the end of March, when Mrs. Wilkins, her heart in her mouth, and her face a mixture of guilt, terror, and determination, told her husband that she had been invited to Italy, and he declined to believe it. Of course he declined to believe it. Nobody had ever invited his wife to Italy before. There was no precedent. He required proofs. The only proof was Mrs. Arbuthnot, and Mrs. Wilkins had produced her. But after what entreaties, what passionate persuading. Mrs. Arbuthnot had not imagined she would have to face Mr. Wilkins and say things to him that were short of the truth, and it brought home to her what she had for some time suspected that she was slipping more and more away from God. Indeed, the whole of March was filled with unpleasant, anxious moments. It was an uneasy month. Mrs. Arbuthnot's conscience, made super-sensitive by years of pampering, could not reconcile what she was doing with its own high standard of what was right gave her little peace. It nudged at her prayers. It punctured her entreaties for divine guidance with disconcerting questions, such as, are you not a hypocrite? Do you really mean that? 
Would you not, frankly, be disappointed if that prayer were granted? The prolonged, wet, raw weather was on the side, too, of her conscience, producing far more sickness than usual among the poor. They had bronchitis. They had fevers. There was no end to the distress. And here she was going off, spending precious money on going off simply and solely to be happy. One woman. One woman being happy. And these piteous multitudes. She was unable to look the vicar in the face. He did not know. Nobody knew what she was going to do. And from the very beginning, she was unable to look anybody in the face. She excused herself from making speeches appealing for money. How could she stand up and ask people for money when she herself was spending so much on her own selfish pleasure? Nor did it help her or quiet her that, having actually told Frederick in her desire to make up for what she was squandering, that she would be grateful if he would let her have some money. He instantly gave her a cheque for one hundred pounds. He asked no questions. She was scarlet. He looked at her a moment and then looked away. It was a relief to Frederick that she should take some money. She gave it all immediately to the organization she worked with and found herself more tangled in doubts than ever. Mrs. Wilkins, on the contrary, had no doubts. She was quite certain that it was a most proper thing to have a holiday, and altogether right and beautiful to spend one's own hard-collected savings on being happy. Think how much nicer we shall be when we come back, she said to Mrs. Arbuthnot, encouraging that pale lady. No, Mrs. Wilkins had no doubts, but she had fears. And March was for her, too, an anxious month, with the unconscious Mr. Wilkins coming back daily to his dinner and eating his fish in the silence of imagined security. Also, things happened so awkwardly. It really is astonishing how awkwardly they happen. Mrs. Wilkins, who was very careful all this month to give Mellash only the food he liked, buying it and hovering over its cooking with a zeal more than common, succeeded so well that Mellash was pleased, definitely pleased. So much pleased that he began to think he might, after all, have married the right wife instead of, as he frequently suspected, the wrong one. The result was that on the third Sunday in the month, Mrs. Wilkins had made up her trembling mind that on the fourth Sunday, there being five that March, and it being on the fifth of them that she and Mrs. Arbuthnot were to start, she would tell Mellish of her invitation. On the third Sunday then, after a very well-cooked lunch, 
in which the Yorkshire pudding had melted in his mouth, and the apricot tart had been so perfect that he ate it all. Mellage, smoking his cigar by the brightly burning fire, while hail gusts banged on the window, said, I'm thinking of taking you to Italy for Easter, and paused for her astounded and grateful ecstasy. None came. The silence in the room, except for the hail hitting the windows and the gay roar of the fire, was complete. Mrs. Wilkins could not speak. She was dumbfounded. The next Sunday was the day she had meant to break her news to him, and she had not yet even prepared the form of words in which she would break it. Mr. Wilkins, who had not been abroad since before the war, and was noticing with increasing disgust as week followed week of wind and rain, the peculiar persistent vileness of the weather, and slowly conceived a desire to get away from England for Easter. He was doing very well in his business. He could afford a trip. Switzerland was useless in April. There was a familiar sound about Easter in Italy. To Italy he would go, and as it would cause comment if he did not take his wife, take her he must. Besides, she would be useful. A second person was always useful in a country whose language one did not speak, for holding things, for waiting with the luggage. He had expected an explosion of gratitude and excitement. The absence of it was incredible. She could not, he concluded, have heard. Probably she was absorbed in some foolish daydream. It was regrettable how childish she remained. He turned his head. Their chairs were in front of the fire and looked at her. She was staring straight into the fire and it was no doubt the fire that made her face so red. I'm thinking he repeated, raising his clear, cultivated voice and speaking with acerbity, for inattention at such a moment was deplorable, of taking you to Italy for Easter. Did you not hear me? Yes, she had heard him, and she had been wondering at the extraordinary coincidence, really most extraordinary, she was just going to tell him how, how she had been invited. A friend had invited her. Easter too. Easter was in April, wasn't it? Her friend had a, had a house there. In fact, Mrs. Wilkins, driven by terror, guilt and surprise, had been more incoherent, if possible, than usual. It was a dreadful afternoon. Melash, profoundly indignant, besides having his intended treat coming back on him like a blessing to roost, 
cross-examined her with the utmost severity. He demanded that she refuse the invitation. He demanded that, since she had so outrageously accepted it without consulting him, she should write and cancel her acceptance. Finding himself up against an unexpected, shocking rock of obstinacy in her, he then declined to believe she had been invited to Italy at all. He declined to believe in this Mrs. Arbuthnot, of whom till that moment he had never heard, and it was only when the gentle creature was brought round, with such difficulty, with such a desire on her part to throw the whole thing up rather than tell Mr. Wilkins less than the truth, and herself endorsed his wife's statements that he was able to give them credence. He could not but believe Mrs. Arbuthnot. She produced the precise effect on him that she did on the tube officials. She hardly needed to say anything, but that made no difference to her conscience, which knew and would not let her forget that she had given him an incomplete impression. Do you, asked her conscience, see any real difference between an incomplete impression and a completely stated lie? God sees none. The remainder of March was a confused, bad dream. Both Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins were shattered, try as they would not to. Both felt extraordinarily guilty. And when on the morning of the 30th did they finally get off, there was no exhilaration about the departure, no holiday feeling at all. We've been too good, much too good, Mrs. Wilkins kept on murmuring as they walked up and down the platform at Victoria, having arrived there an hour before they need have. And that is why we feel as though we're doing wrong. We're browbeaten. We're not any longer real human beings. Real human beings aren't ever as good as we've been. (sighs) She clenched her thin hands. To think that we ought to be so happy now, here, on the very station, actually starting. And we're not. It's been spoiled for us just simply because we've spoiled them. What have we done? What have we done, I should like to know? She inquired of Mrs. Arbuthnot indignantly. Except for once, want to go away by ourselves and have a little rest from them. Mrs. Arbuthnot, patiently pacing, did not ask who she meant by them, because she knew. Mrs. Wilkins meant their husbands, persisting in her assumption that Frederick was as indignant as Mellish over the departure of his wife, whereas Frederick did not even know his wife had gone. Mrs. Arbuthnot, always silent about him, had said nothing of this to Mrs. Wilkins. Frederick went too deep into her heart for her to talk about him. 
He was having an extra bout of work finishing another of those dreadful books and had been away practically continually the last few weeks and was away when she left. Why should she tell him beforehand? Sure as she so miserably was that he would have no objection to anything she did, she merely wrote him a note and put it on the hall table ready for him, if and when he should come home. She said she was going for a month's holiday as she needed a rest, and she had not had one for so long, and that Gladys, the efficient parlour maid, had orders to see to his comforts. She did not say where she was going. There was no reason why she should. He would not be interested. He would not care. The day was wretched, blustering and wet. The crossing was atrocious, and they were very sick. But after having been very sick, just to arrive at Calais and not be sick was happiness. And it was there that the real splendor of what they were doing first began to warm their benumbed spirits. It got hold of Mrs. Wilkins first, and spread from her like a rose-colored flame over her pale companion. Mellish at Calais, where they restored themselves with souls because of Mrs. Wilkins' desire to eat a soul Mellish wasn't having, Mellish at Calais had already begun to dwindle and seem less important. None of the French porters knew him, not a single official at Calais cared a fig for Mellash. In Paris, there was no time to think of him, because their train was late, and they only just caught the Turin train at the Gare de Lyon. And by the afternoon of the next day, when they got into Italy, England, Frederick, Mellash, the vicar, the poor, Hampstead, the club, Shul bread, everybody and everything, the whole inflamed, sore dreariness had faded into the dimness of a dream. Chapter 5 It was cloudy in Italy, which surprised them. They had expected brilliant sunshine. But never mind, it was Italy, and the very clouds looked fat. Neither of them had ever been there before. Both gazed out of the windows with rapt faces. The hours flew as long as it was daylight, and after that was the excitement of getting nearer, getting quite near, getting there. At Genoa, it had begun to rain. Genoa. Imagine actually being at Genoa, seeing its name written up in the station just like any other name. At Nervi, it was pouring, and when at last, towards midnight, for again the train was late, they got to Mezzago, the rain was coming down in what seemed solid sheets but it was Italy. 
Nothing it did could be bad. The very rain was different. Straight rain, falling properly onto one's umbrella. Not that violently blowing English stuff that got in everywhere. And it did leave off. And when it did, behold, the earth would be strewn with roses. Mr. Briggs, San Salvatore's owner, had said, You get out at Mazago, and then you drive. But he had forgotten what he amply knew, that trains in Italy are sometimes late, and he had imagined his tenants arriving at Mazago at eight o'clock and finding strings of flies to choose from. The train was four hours late, And when Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins scrambled down the ladder-like high steps of their carriage into the black downpour, their skirts sweeping off great pools of sooty wet because their hands were full of suitcases, if it had not been for the vigilance of Domenico, the gardener at San Salvatore, they would have found nothing for them to drive in. All ordinary flies had long since gone home. Domenico, foreseeing this, had sent his aunt's fly, driven by her son, his cousin. And his aunt and her fly lived in Castagnato, the village crouching at the feet of San Salvatore. And therefore, however late the train was, the fly would not dare come home without containing that which it had been sent to fetch. Domenico's cousin's name was Beppo, and he presently emerged out of the dark where Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins stood, uncertain what to do next after the train had gone, for they could see no porter, and they thought, from the feel of it, that they were standing not so much on a platform as in the middle of the permanent way, Beppo, who had been searching for them, emerged from the dark with a kind of pounce and talked Italian to them vociferously. Beppo was a most respectable young man, but he did not look as if he were, especially not in the dark, and he had a dripping cat slouched over one eye. They did not like the way he seized their suitcases, He could not be, they thought, a porter. However, they presently, from out of his streaming talk, discerned the words San Salvatore. And after that, they kept on saying them to him, for it was the only Italian they knew, as they hurried after him, unwilling to lose sight of their suitcases, stumbling across rails and through puddles out to where in the road a small high fly stood. Its hood was up, and its horse was in an attitude of thought. They climbed in, and the minute they were in, Mrs. Wilkins indeed could hardly be called in. The horse awoke with a start from its reverie, and immediately began going home rapidly, without Beppo, without the suitcases. Beppo darted after him, making the night ring with his shouts 
and caught the hanging grains just in time. He explained proudly, and as it seemed to him with perfect clearness, that the horse always did that, being a fine animal full of corn and blood, and cared for him, Beppo, as if he were his own son, and that the ladies must be alarmed. He had noticed they were clutching each other. But clear and loud and profuse of words though he was, they only looked at him blankly. He went on talking, however, while he piled the suitcases up round them, sure that sooner or later they must understand him, especially as he was careful to talk very loud and illustrate everything he said with the simplest elucidatory gestures. But they both continued only to look at him. They both, he noticed sympathetically, had white faces, fatigued faces, and they both had big eyes, fatigued eyes. They were beautiful ladies, he thought, and their eyes, looking at him over the tops of the suitcases, watching his every movement. There were no trunks, only numbers of suitcases, were like the eyes of the Mother of God. The only thing the ladies said, and they repeated it at regular intervals, even after they had started, gently prodding him as he sat on his box to call his attention to it, was, San Salvatore? And each time he answered vociferously, encouragingly, Si, si, San Salvatore. We don't know, of course, if he's taking us there, said Mrs. Arbuthnot, at last in a low voice, after they had been driving, as it seemed to them, a long while, and he had got off the paving stones of the sleep-shrouded town and were on a winding road with what they could just see was a low wall on their left, beyond which was a great, black emptiness and the sound of the sea. On their right was something close and steep and high and black. Rocks, they whispered to each other. Huge rocks. No, we don't know, agreed Mrs. Wilkins, a slight coldness passing down her spine. They felt very uncomfortable, it was so late, it was so dark, the road was so lonely. Suppose a wheel came off, suppose they met Fascisti, or the opposite of Fascisti. How sorry they were now they had not slept at Genoa and come on the next morning in daylight. But that would have been the first of April, said Mrs. Wilkins in a low voice. It is that now, said Mrs. Arbuthnot beneath her breath. So it is, murmured Mrs. Wilkins. They were silent. Beppo turned around on his box, a disquieting habit already noticed, for surely his horse ought to be carefully watched, and again addressed them with what he was convinced was lucidity. No patois. 
and the clearest explanatory movements. How much they wished their mothers had made them learn Italian when they were little. If only now they could have said, please sit round the right way and look after the horse. They did not even know what horse was in Italian. It was contemptible to be so ignorant. In their anxiety, for the road twisted round great jutting rocks, and on their left was only the low wall to keep them out of the sea should anything happen, they too began to gesticulate, waving their hands at Beppo, pointing ahead. They wanted him to turn round again and face his horse, that was all. He thought they wanted him to drive faster, and there followed a terrifying ten minutes, during which, as he supposed, he was gratifying them. He was proud of his horse, and it could go very fast. He rose in his seat, the whip cracked, the horse rushed forward, the rocks leaped towards them, the little fly swayed, the suitcases heaved, Mrs. Arbuthnot and Mrs. Wilkins clung. In this way they continued, swaying, heaving, clattering, clinging, till at a point near Castagneto there was a rise in the road, and on reaching the foot of the rise, the horse, who knew every inch of the way, stopped suddenly, throwing everything in the fly into a heap, and then proceeding up at the slowest of walks. Beppo twisted himself round to receive their admiration, laughing with pride in his horse. There was no answering laugh from the beautiful ladies. Their eyes, fixed on him, seemed bigger than ever, and their faces against the black of the night showed milky. But here at least, once they were up the slope, were the houses. The rocks left off, and there were houses. The low wall left off, and there were houses. The sea shrunk away, and the sound of it ceased, and the loneliness of the road was finished. No lights anywhere, of course, nobody to see them pass, and yet Beppo, when the houses began, after looking over his shoulder and shouting, Castagnetto, at the ladies, once more stood up and cracked his whip, and once more made his horse dash forward. We shall be there in a minute, Mrs. Arbuthnot said to herself holding on. We shall soon stop now, Mrs. Wilkins said to herself, holding on. They said nothing aloud, because nothing would have been heard above the whip cracking and the wheel clattering and the boisterous, inciting noises Beppo was making at his horse. Anxiously, they strained their eyes for any sight of the beginning of San Salvatore. They had supposed and hoped 
that after a reasonable amount of village, a medieval archway would loom up upon them. And through it, they would drive into a garden and draw up at an open, welcoming door with light streaming from it and those servants standing in it who, according to the advertisement, remained. Instead, the fly suddenly stopped. Peering out, they could see that they were still in the village street, with small, dark houses each side, and Beppo, throwing the reins over the horse's back, as if completely confident at this time that he would not go any farther, got down off his box. At the same moment, springing as it seemed out of nothing, a man and several half-grown boys appeared on each side of the fly and began dragging out the suitcases. No, no, San Salvatore, San Salvatore, exclaimed Mrs. Wilkins, trying to hold on to what suitcases she could. Si, si, San Salvatore, they all shouted, pulling. This can't be San Salvatore, said Mrs. Wilkins, turning to Mrs. Arbuthnot, who sat quite still, watching her suitcases being taken from her, with the same patience she applied to lesser evils. She knew she could do nothing if these men were wicked men determined to have her suitcases. I don't think it can be, she admitted, and could not refrain from a moment's wonder at the ways of God. Had she really been brought here? She and poor Mrs. Wilkins, after so much trouble in arranging it, so much difficulty and worry along such devious paths of prevarication and deceit, only to be. She checked her thoughts and gently said to Mrs. Wilkins, while the ragged youths disappeared with the suitcases into the night and the man with the lantern helped Beppo pull the rug off her, that they were both in God's hands. And for the first time on hearing this, Mrs. Wilkins was afraid there was nothing for it but to get out. Useless to try to go on sitting in the fly, repeating San Salvatore. Each time they said it, and their voices each time were fainter, Beppo and the other man merely echoed it in a series of loud shouts. If only they had learned Italian when they were little. If only they could have said, we wish to be driven to the door. But they did not even know what door was in Italian. Such ignorance was not only contemptible, it was, they now saw, definitely dangerous. Useless, however, to lament it now. Useless to put off whatever it was that was going to happen to them by trying to go on sitting in the fly. They therefore got out. The two men opened their umbrellas for them and handed them to them. From this, 
they received a faint encouragement, because they could not believe that if these men were wicked, they would pause to open umbrellas. The man with the lantern then made signs to them to follow him, talking loud and quickly, and Beppo, they noticed, remained behind. Ought they to pay him? Not, they thought, if they were going to be robbed and perhaps murdered. Surely on such an occasion one did not pay. Besides, he had not, after all, brought them to San Salvatore. Where they had got to was evidently somewhere else. Also, he did not show the least wish to be paid. He let them go away into the night with no clamour at all. This, they could not help thinking, was a bad sign. He asked for nothing, because presently he was to get so much. They came to some steps. The road ended abruptly in a church and some descending steps. The man held the lantern low for them to see the steps. San Salvatore, said Mrs. Wilkins once again, very faintly before committing herself to the steps. It was useless to mention it now, of course, but she could not go down the steps in complete silence. No medieval castle, she was sure, was ever built at the bottom of steps. Again, however, came the echoing shout. Si, si, San Salvatore. They descended gingerly, holding up their skirts, just as if they would be wanting them another time and had not in all probability finished with skirts forever. The steps ended in a steeply sloping path with flat, stone slabs down the middle. They slipped a good deal on these wet slabs, and the man with the lantern, talking loud and quickly, held them up. His way of holding them up was polite. Perhaps, said Mrs. Wilkins in a low voice to Mrs. Arbuthnot, it is all right after all. We are in God's hands said Mrs. Arbuthnot again, and again Mrs. Wilkins was afraid. They reached the bottom of the sloping path, and the light of the lantern flickered over an open space with houses round three sides. The sea was the fourth side, lazily washing backwards and forwards on pebbles. San Salvatore, said the man, pointing with his lantern to a black mass curved round the water like an arm flung about it. They strained their eyes. They saw the black mass, and on top of it, a light. San Salvatore, they both repeated incredulously. For where were the suitcases, and why had they been forced to get out of the fly? Si, si, San Salvatore. 
They went along what seemed to be a quay, right on the edge of the water. There was not even a low wall here, nothing to prevent the man with the lantern tipping them in if he wanted to. He did not, however, tip them in. Perhaps it was all right after all, Mrs. Wilkins again suggested to Mrs. Arbuthnot on noticing this, who this time was herself beginning to think that it might be, and said no more about God's hands. The flicker of the lantern danced along, reflected in the wet pavement of the quay. Out to the left, in the darkness, and evidently at the end of a jetty, was a red light. They came to an archway with a heavy iron gate. The man with the lantern pushed the gate open. This time they went up steps instead of down, and at the top of them was a little path that wound upwards among flowers. They could not see the flowers, but the whole place was evidently full of them. It here dawned on Mrs. Wilkins that perhaps the reason why the fly had not driven them up to the door was that there was no road, only a footpath. That also would explain the disappearance of the suitcases. She began to feel confident that they would find their suitcases waiting for them when they got up to the top. San Salvatore was, it seemed, on the top of a hill, as a medieval castle should be. At a turn of the path, they saw above them, much nearer now, and shining more brightly, the light they had seen from the quay. She told Mrs. Arbuthnot of her dawning belief, and Mrs. Arbuthnot agreed that it was likely a very true one. Once more, but this time in a tone of real hopefulness, Mrs. Wilkins said, pointing upwards at the black outline against the only slightly less black sky. San Salvatore. And once more, but this time comfortingly, encouragingly, came back the assurance, Si, si, San Salvatore. They crossed a little bridge over what was apparently a ravine, and then came a flat bit with long grass at the sides and more flowers. They felt the grass flicking wet against their stockings, and the invisible flowers were everywhere. Then up again through trees, along a zigzag path, with the smell all the way of the flowers they could not see. The warm rain was bringing out all the sweetness. Higher and higher they went in this sweet darkness, and the red light on the jetty dropped farther and farther below them. The path wound round to the other side of what appeared to be a little peninsula. The jetty and the red light disappeared. Across the emptiness on their left were distant lights. Mezago! 
said the man, waving his lantern at the light. See, see, they answered, for they had by now learned see, see. Upon which the man congratulated them in a great flow of polite words, not one of which they understood, on their magnificent Italian. For this was Domenico, the vigilant and accomplished gardener of San Salvatore, the prop and stay of the establishment, the resourceful, the gifted, the eloquent, the courteous, the intelligent Domenico. Only they didn't know that yet, and he did in the dark, even sometimes in the light, look with his knife-sharp features and swift panther movements, very like somebody wicked. They passed along another flat bit of path, with a black shape like a high wall towering above them on their right, and then the path went up again under trellises and trailing sprays of scented things caught at them and shook raindrops on them and the light of the lantern flickered over lilies. And then came a flight of ancient steps, worn with centuries. And then another iron gate. And then they were inside, though still climbing a twisted flight of stone steps, with old walls on either side, like the walls of dungeons, and with a vaulted roof. At the top was a wrought iron door, and through it shone a flood of electric light. Echo, said Domenico, lithely running up the last few steps ahead and pushing the door open. And they were there, arrived, and it was San Salvatore, and their suitcases were waiting for them, and they had not been murdered. They looked at each other's faces white and blinking eyes very solemnly. It was a great, a wonderful moment. Here they were in their medieval castle at last. Their feet touched its stones. Mrs. Wilkins put her arm around Mrs. Arbuthnot's neck and kissed her thing to happen in this house, she said softly, solemnly, shall be a kiss. Dear Lottie, said Mrs. Arbuthnot. Dear Rose, said Mrs. Wilkins, her eyes brimming with gladness. Domenico was delighted. He liked to see beautiful ladies kiss. He made them a most appreciative speech of welcome, and they stood arm in arm, holding each other up, for they were very tired, blinking smilingly at him, and not understanding a word.